So Jesus, we ask that you teach us about your power and your victory from your word so that we live in it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, great to have you all with us. Hello to our middle schoolers and our high schoolers, those of you in the 11 o'clock service as well as at home online. You guys here, thank you for coming. Just FYI, if you kind of come in a little bit late and you never don't know if there's any seats, there's usually seats up in the front row, typical Presbyterian church. Um, so you're, just know when you come in, there's usually a few up here uh, for, you to, for you to sit in. Uh, we've been in this sermon series on love, which actually is pretty important because if you think about it, love touches every aspect of our lives. School, work, friendship, families, jobs, love touches it all. So getting love right really matters. And in the text that Annie just read, it says that love always protects. And that's going to be the focus today. That is, love is no wimpy, weak, passive emotion. Love defends. Love protects. Love fights for what's loved. Whether that's siblings defending each other at school or friends who stick up for each other or parents protecting their kids. That's a huge one. Uh, As you know, my oldest is in her first year of college and I've sort of shared the journey with you uh, this year. Well, there's been a development. (laughs) Apparently there's this boy. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. And that's fairly new, so we haven't met him. And they're just, they're actually happy that I'm sharing this story. But uh, a little bit ago, the boy asked my daughter, so what's your dad like? Like, is he bigger than me? Could he beat me up? I said, tell him yes and yes, and that I don't mind going back to jail. She said, dad, he knows you're a pastor. Oh, dang it. Pastors can be tough and scary too, right? Love protects. Love is not a wimpy emotion. And that's what we see in this story of Ruth, who fights for her family, which leads not just to surviving, but triumphing and overcoming and being part of God's redemption story. And the story of Ruth starts with a woman named Naomi, who is married to her husband Elimelech, and they live in Bethlehem. But then there's a famine, which is kind of ironic, because Bethlehem means house of bread, so there's no bread in the house of bread. So they go to Moab to escape it. And they have two sons. And the text says that they married Moabite women, not Hebrew women. One named Orpah, so kind of like Oprah, but different. And the other one, Ruth. Well, after 10 years pass, Elimelech and both sons die childless. So now Naomi is left alone with her two daughters-in-law. She's too old to work in the fields, too old to get married, because back then you only got married to have kids. She's past that. And her kids are all dead, so there's no one to support her. She is spiritually, emotionally, financially destitute. And yet this story ends in triumph, in overcoming, because Ruth fights with a fierce protecting love to defend and protect Naomi. Let me give you a couple questions to think about as I go through this sermon. Who has shown you fierce protecting love? And to whom may you be called to extend a fierce protecting love? Who may you be called to fight for? Maybe it's someone you don't even know right now. And then how have you been the recipient of God's protecting love in your life? Just kind of think about those things as your mind wanders while I preach. And for those of you who right now are going through a hard time, maybe you're like, yeah, I don't feel God's protecting love. It's really tough right now and he's not helping. This story says that God is always at work behind the scenes fighting for us whether we see it or not, so have hope. Well, the famine ends 
And so Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, but she says to her two daughters-in-law, don't come with me. It's nothing but misery for you there. Because as a Moabite, as Moabites, Ruth and Orpah would have been seen as racially different. Not only that, Israel and Moab were often at war, so they'd be seen as racially different, dangerous immigrants from an enemy nation, and their lives could, could even be in jeopardy. So Naomi says, don't come with me, go back to your parents, right? To which Orpah says, okay, bye. But Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where, I, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She makes this covenant commitment, kind of like marriage for life, right? And and this may be why this passage often gets read at a lot of weddings. However, at weddings, they usually don't go on to the next verse, which says, where you die, I will die. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates us. So that part's kind of a downer, so it doesn't get to the wedding, right? (laughs) Verse cuts off early. And here we see that love protects people, not just physically, which is the first thing we think of, but also emotionally, Ruth is saying to Naomi, I'm with you. You're not alone. I've got your back. There's a lot of ways we can protect people emotionally. It could mean sitting with that kid at school that nobody sits with at lunch to make them feel included. It could be empowering a coworker to get through a difficult season. I recently heard a man named Bob who lives in Chicago talk about when his wife died, he, was, he just couldn't function. But the next day, the phone rang, and it was a friend of his named Jack who lived in a different city. And Jack said, I know that probably right now you maybe don't want to talk to anyone. I just want you to know I took the first flight in this morning, and I have checked into a hotel room, and I'm here just in case you need me. I can do anything you want, and I can do nothing, but I'm here for you. And it took Bob a couple of days to be able to call him, but finally Bob called, and Jack went over to his house, and sometimes they talked, and sometimes they just sat in silence. Jack did errands for Bob, cooked dinner for his kids, all of that. That is a bold move, right? That is, that is Jack fighting for Bob so that Bob knew that he was not alone in the world. He had a defender by his side who was not going to leave him and was going to fight for him. That was a bold move. And it also shows that protecting love requires courage on our part. For Jack to do that, that takes some courage to leave, spend the money, leave your job, all of that, right? That took some courage. For Ruth, oh my gosh, she, she shows a ton of courage, right? Every immigrant shows courage. My wife is the daughter of two brave Chinese immigrants who came here as, as adults. But Ruth, in Ruth's case, tons of courage to go back to Bethlehem where she would be seen as a racially different immigrant from an enemy nation, therefore dangerous and potentially could even get herself killed, right? She had courage. Where might God be asking courage of you to extend that fierce protecting love? Because it always takes courage. Maybe it is to sit with that kid at school who nobody sits with and risk being ridiculed for it. Maybe it is. Maybe it's to, maybe it's to treat immigrants differently because immigrants, like Ruth sometimes, are viewed with suspicion. So maybe it's to treat them in a way that shows them that they are loved by God. And where do you think Ruth got this courage? I mean, this is a lot of chutzpah she shows here. Like, where do you think she got this courage? Well, she gives us a clue when she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates us. See, that's a clue because in the original Hebrew, she does not use the generic term for God, Elohim. She uses the personal, intimate name of God, Yahweh. So she's saying that, 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 that Naomi's God has become personal and real to her. And having experienced God's fierce protecting love, she can give it away to Naomi. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem, 
And it says, in Ruth the Moabite, the text always reminds us that she is a foreigner who took her life in her hands by following Ruth back to Israel. Ruth said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in in whose eyes I find favor. So there's some background here that you need to know. See, because God is a fierce, protecting God. God is always fighting for us. And this is kind of alluding to that. Because see, back then, uh, this is an example of God. God was a God of justice, right? One of the laws he gave to Israel said, when you reap the harvest, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Leave them for the poor and foreigners residing among you. In other words, leave some of your crop for immigrants and the poor so that they can have something to eat. This is a law God gave to protect people because God is a protecting God. Okay, then it goes on and it says, As it turned out, she, Ruth, was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. So this is kind of a a, a relative, right? And the phrase, as it turns out, should be in air quotes. Because this is the author being kind of snarky, saying, yeah, it wasn't a coincidence at all. Right? Like coincidence is just when God chooses to remain anonymous. So Ruth just kind of happens, except she didn't just happen, God did it, to end up in a field that belongs to one of the few relatives that they have left. Only Ruth doesn't know it yet. Well, Boaz finds out about this, and then he says to Ruth, My daughter, I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, what's going on here is as a racially different immigrant in the field, she could have been hurt. Uh, As a woman, she could have been sexually harassed, raped, maybe even killed by the men in that field. So Boaz here is protecting her, even though he has never met her, doesn't know who she is. And not only that, he offers her the water that the men have drawn for themselves to drink, which in this culture is like just scandalous because in this culture, women always got water for men, not the other way around, as is happening here. And when the text introduces Boaz, it's very clear about who he is. It says, uh, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. The Hebrew phrase there for man of standing is gibor hayil. And it means to be very strong physically. So Boaz was very physically strong. It also means to be wealthy. It also means warrior. So basically he's a stud, (laughs) right? Like strong, wealthy warrior dude, right? That's Boaz. And he uses his social, physical, and economic power for good. Protecting love means using our social, physical, economic, spiritual power for good, and we all have power. And there are two ways to abuse power. One way is to use the power we have to coerce people, bully people, intimidate people into doing what we want or to take something from them. The other way to abuse power, we don't talk about this one so much, but it is equally an abuse of power. That is to fail to take up the power God has given us and use it for good. To be passive is to abuse power. Pastor John Ortberg tells a story of how right after one of their kids was born, his wife was holding the baby and she said, I'd kill for this baby. And John thought that sounded a little aggressive. So he said, I think you mean that you would die for this baby. And she said, no, then I'd be dead. I couldn't be your mom. That'd be stupid. No, I'd kill for this baby, right? And John said, stop it. You're scaring the baby, right? And and scary me, right? That's not quite what I mean, right? To to use our power for good doesn't mean we're belligerent, abusive, destructive. No, 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 no. But it may mean things like using your positional power at work to empower employees to achieve their fullest potential. It may mean using your social power to befriend someone. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, right? Students, you right now may be thinking, I don't have any power. I'm just a student. I'm just 16, 17 years old. No, you have lots of power, 
right? A while back, I I told a story of some high school students who formed a, a club in their school called the No One Eats Alone Club. And they look for people at lunch who are alone. And sadly, sometimes that's immigrants, people who are racially different. And they invite them to eat with them and join their club so no one eats alone. And the confidence that gives their fellow students, the the sense of inclusion, it helps them learn better, which sets them up for a better future. It makes them feel confident. It changes their lives. Those high school students are fighting the forces of loneliness and subtle racism using their social power for good. Students, you have persuasive power by what you post on Instagram or Snapchat or other social media. When Boaz helps Ruth, she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death, how you left your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. Ruth's courageous, protecting love for Naomi inspires Boaz to do the same thing. That's persuasive power. You have economic power. In the past, I've told you two stories about clerks at grocery stores. One who would ask African-Americans for two pieces of ID to write a check when she didn't do that for white customers. And another had a black kid arrested for standing in line eating a candy bar that he was standing in line to pay for, something they would never have done to a white customer. In both cases, suburban moms respectfully but firmly told the owners about it, which resulted in training policies to get rid of some of that crap. They use their economic power for good. What power do you have? Two ways to abuse power. And a lot of times, I got to be honest, I am guilty of failing to take up power and use it for good more than using coercive power. And that is equally an abuse of power. Okay, let's keep going with the story. So Naomi finds out how Boaz is helping Ruth. So Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, I must find you a home. Uh, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Boaz is a relative of ours. Put on perfume and your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor where he's going to be. So what we have here is your standard issue interfering (laughs) mother-in-law. Why don't you get yourself a husband, dear? That Boaz man, he seems nice. Get yourself gussied up. Go get yourself a man. But there's actually something kind of deeper going on here. So just a little bit of background here in the Old Testament. So God knew that because of tragic circumstances, some people would lose their land and fall into poverty. And God, remember, is a God of fierce protecting love, and he wants to protect people. So he gave two laws to protect people in that case. The first was the law of Jubilee that said every 50 years, all land had to revert back to its original owners. The second law said that land could be bought back. They called it redeemed out of debt, but only by a member of the family that lost it to keep land and family together because that's their livelihood. The other thing this references is what's called leveret marriage, where if a man dies and he hasn't, doesn't have any kids, a brother or a close male relative would marry his widow and have kids with her as a way of continuing the dead brother's lineage and name. Both of those two things are in the background here. This person would be called a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer, and that's who Boaz is. He could redeem the land by buying it, but in his case, the land couldn't be restored to the family because the descendants are all dead, no one to pass it on to. So to fix that, he would have to marry the closest person in the family of childbearing years. In this case, it would be Ruth, a Moabite. So an interracial marriage with a despised immigrant. So Ruth makes a bold move. 
And she goes to where Boaz is, the threshing floor, and she sleeps at Boaz's feet one night. And in the middle of the night, the text says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. I love that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where'd you come from, right? And then Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer for our family. What she just did there was ask Boaz to marry her. This is a proposal. This is a bold move for a woman to make in that culture. When my wife and I were dating, she decided early on that we were going to get married. And apparently I took too long to come to this decision. So every day when I'd go to her apartment to pick her up for a date, every day she would open the door and say, is today the day you're going to ask me to marry you? She wouldn't say hi. She wouldn't, just no pause. The door would open and she'd say, is today the day you're going to ask me to marry you? Right? And I'd be like, no. Right? She did this for almost three months every stinking day. Is today the day? Right? So when I finally did decide to ask her to marry me, right, I wanted it to be a surprise. Question, how do you do that when every day it's, is today the day? Right? So I planned it out. I picked her up. And when I picked her up, she said, are you going to ask me to marry you today? And I said, no, but I made some reservations at a restaurant. Well, she got in the car and I said, well, the reservations aren't for another hour. So I thought that we could go to a park and just hang out. She started bouncing up and down in the seat. You're going to ask me today. You're going to ask me today. Right? It's today. I just know it. Right? So... My plan was to ask her in the park before dinner, but my wife gets really grouchy when she hasn't eaten, so I brought some snacks along because I didn't want her to say no, right? Just out of grouchiness, right? She saw the snacks and she said, oh, you brought snacks because you don't want me to say no, right? (laughs) So we got to the park and she's like, we're not even out of the car. We got to the park and she said, oh, you're going to ask me in the park? You're going to ask me in the park? So finally I said, oh, fine, yes. Will you marry me? That's Ruth. So Boaz marries her. I know how he feels. And now Ruth and Naomi's debts are paid, but they also inherit all of his wealth, and they are given a whole brand new life because he acted as their kinsman redeemer. And what this shows is that we can have a fierce protecting love for others because God fights for us he, with his protecting love, even in the worst of circumstances, even when we can't see it at the time. Naomi and Ruth are poor. Their husbands are dead. Ruth is an immigrant in a, in a, from a despised race in a foreign land. How much worse can it get? And yet there are signs of hope that God is moving behind the scenes, fighting for them, defending them, protecting them. In the book of Ruth, there are no dramatic miracles, no huge displays of God's power, but God is at work in the mundane and in the ordinary. When Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, some of her friends recognize her, and Naomi says to her friends, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, isn't that cheerful? Call me bitter. I'm empty. Someone's having a bad day. And you can kind of see Naomi's friends going, you're not empty. There's Ruth. You have Ruth. She can't see it. See, sometimes we can't see the signs of hope that are right in front of us because we're just in such a difficult time. 
Ruth just happens to end up in Boaz's field. That is God working behind the scenes. So if life is really hard for you right now and you're like, where is this protecting God? I don't see him. Know that he is working behind the scenes for your good and his glory. He does it all the time. And it may take time. This story covers 10 years, 10 years of famine, 10 years where Ruth was childless in her first marriage. It can take time, but God is there working behind the scenes, fighting for you, protecting you, defending you. God guided events so that Ruth and Boaz got married. They had a son, and which because of leveret marriage meant that was also Naomi's son as well. And the text said, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And in that culture, as in ours, if you wanted to build a legacy, if you wanted to build up wealth, sons were better than daughters because culture, society like ours, gives men more access to power. So, and seven is the number of perfection. So seven sons means having a ton of money, power, the perfect family. And these women are saying, but God's fierce protecting love is more fulfilling than all of those things. And ultimately what they are pointing at, what this whole story points at, what Ruth and Boaz's son points at is Jesus himself. Because see, at the end of the book of Ruth, it says that Ruth and Boaz named their son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth, the despised immigrant from a different race, becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, David. And eventually Jesus himself, because Jesus is descended from David. And the New Testament wants us to really get this, and it underscores it. In the very first chapter of the New Testament, it's crystal clear. It's a genealogy. It's on purpose. Part of the genealogy says Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, a prostitute, by the way, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And it keeps going until you get all the way down to Jesus. The first chapter of the New Testament makes it crystal clear that Jesus is the product of an interracial marriage between an immigrant and an Israelite. And like his great, 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 lots of greats, grandmother Ruth, who lived in Bethlehem where Jesus was born, Jesus left his home became an immigrant in a foreign land and said, I am willing to die to show you my fierce protecting love for you and to give you a bigger life. The book of Ruth opens with an old widow complaining, call me bitter. And it ends with her daughter-in-law becoming the ancestor of Israel's greatest king and of Jesus himself. The isolated worries of two women get linked to God's bigger story of redemption. They started out empty, but they end up full. Recently heard a man named Paul, who is a judge, talk about how he was reading a book with his teenage daughter called The Purpose Driven Life. And his daughter said to him, Dad, what's your purpose, right? Which, if you think about it, could almost be insulting, right? And he gave this vague answer about being a light on the bench or whatnot. But that night he started to pray, Jesus, show me how I can be significant for you in my work. And he kept praying that. Well, nine months later, one day, he just was seeing this string of domestic violence victims in his court. And then after that, the sheriff brought in a prostitute. And Paul realized she looked exactly like the domestic violence victims he'd seen all day. So he started to do some research, discovered that 87% of prostitutes have been abused at a young age, often start to use drugs to cope with it as young as 11 or 12. Some of them run away and predatory pimps force them into the, the sex trade. So Paul decided to apply his faith to his work. 
and launched a two-year program where women get drug treatment, they receive counseling, they receive emotional support, they show up in his court uh, once a week to talk about their progress, they end up feeling loved, cared for, which empowers them to a whole new life. One woman was sold when she was a little girl by her mother to an older man so the mom could buy some crack cocaine. Uh, She's now an honor student in college. Others have started businesses. Many of them have entered a relationship with Jesus. They are finding real community. They are finding that they are loved. But Paul says for him, the transformation for him may be even greater and even more miraculous. Because Paul said the Holy Spirit reveals constantly how much I have been forgiven and how similar I am to the people that come in front of me in my courtroom, all of which makes me grateful to Jesus, and it, it makes me more understanding, and it makes me more kind. Paul demonstrated protecting love, fighting for people he didn't even know, not just so that they could survive, but to thrive, to overcome, to triumph in a whole new life. And in the process, God expanded Paul's world and made his job more meaningful. Now, most of you aren't judges, okay? But you do still have power. Right? Maybe, maybe protecting love for you means empowering your employees to reach their full potential. Maybe like the man who flew to Chicago to be with his friend, it's, it's supporting someone emotionally. Maybe like the high school students who did the No One Dines Alone Club. Maybe it's to befriend someone who needs a friend. Maybe it's to, to correct something that is unfair in your workplace or in school. Right? Whatever it is, the point is, whatever it is, love protects, love defends. And what that means is that when we face troubles in our own lives, problems in our own lives, problems in the world, poverty, loneliness, loss, what it means is we do not give in to despair. What we do say is we don't have to take this. We don't have to take this lying down. And just like our God who uses every weapon formed against us and uses it for our good and his glory, our God who stops at nothing to get to us, our God who in Jesus on the cross absorbs sin and death and conquers it by rising again three days later, just like our God, what that means is we will fight. Where there's loneliness, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll fight it. Where there's injustice, with God's help, we'll fight it. When we face sorrow and grief and loss in our own lives, or when we see it in others, we will not despair. We will fight it. We will fight for our friendships, fight for our marriages, fight for our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods, fight for our hearts, fight for our minds, fight for our attitudes. We will fight. And Satan, there's not a damn thing you can do about it, literally. So you might as well go back to hell where you came from. We're not going to give in. We're not going to give up. We're not going to concede defeat. We're not going to surrender because we are not undefended, unprotected, unprovided for. We have a kinsman redeemer and his name is Jesus and he is mighty to save. What that means is we shall overcome. So Jesus, thank you that you are mighty to save. Thank you that you protect and defend. Thank you that you are a strong God who makes your sons and daughters strong as well. And God, help us to experience your radical, protecting, defending love and extend it to others who need it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.